Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well if you have a home but you're not always at home you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast. So Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Prison is an extreme subculture. And if you step into that subculture and you don't know how that world works, the rules, you can get seriously hurt. And the scary part is that I slowly learned to cut it. And at the three and a half, four year mark, honestly, the person I was most scared of was me. the second part in a two-part series with our guest Arthur Bolkus, who has worked for many years as a criminologist, activist and public speaker. But in his late teens and early 20s, Arthur was pulling double duty as a promising young law student and an armed robber. We discovered in part one that Arthur was eventually captured after a very dramatic car chase through the streets of the inner Melbourne suburb of Paran. And we pick up our conversation with Arthur's memories of his sentencing and incarceration. What happened was when they arrested me and they kept me there like late into Saturday night to the point, look, I'd studied law, right? I'd done law and I knew enough. In fact, there was a lecturer 
who said to us once, um, he was a professor, and he said, if you ever get arrested, you're obliged to give your name and your address, and then you can say, I refuse to say anything else. I want to see a lawyer, and ask for me if you ever get into trouble. So I knew, and and I said, look, I that's my name, that's my address, and that's all I'm going to say. And w- when they first arrested me, I got slapped around, and it would have been really rough given what I'd done. But when I mentioned his name, they all balked and they said, how do you know him? Now, there was an inquiry back in the day. It was called the Beach Inquiry into police corruption and all sorts of other things. And this particular professor who taught us at uni as well was the prosecutor against the police. So he was well known. And I said, well, he's, he's a lecturer at uni and I, I want to speak to him. And they said, how do you know him? I said, I told you, I'm a law student. They didn't believe me. They thought I was making it up. And when they realised, they, I remember they went away and came back in and you could tell that they knew because their attitude changed. There was no more heaviness. You know, they treated me better because they were concerned if they treated me badly and he stepped in. A few hours after I was arrested, my sister, I've got two sisters, my middle sort of sister, she appeared. Now, my parents had gone out that night. The police called my home. She answered. She came in. And so she was the first family member. And when I saw her, I just started crying. And I, I remember I said, I'm glad it's over. And I was. In a strange way, I was relieved. Because, you know, the truth is, if they didn't catch me, every couple of months I would have kept doing it. And like some guys I met, I could have done 20 of them or 30 of them, you know, and done a lot, lot more jail too. So I was relieved. I saw my parents on the Monday. I spent another day on the Sunday being interrogated. They were trying to load me up with, I remember, you did this and you did that. And I said, hey, hey, back off. No, I didn't. (laughs) Like, okay, I'll wear the ones I did, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to sort of nod to those. They wanted to clean their books, I suppose. And on the Monday morning, I fronted at the old magistrate's court there. And as I entered the court, I didn't even know what it was. The holding cells had a a ladder. It was like a staircase. And it went up to this door. And I remember the policeman said, go through that door. I didn't know where I was going. I opened the door. I'm in the court. Yeah, it's literally up and then they literally send you down, don't they? That's right. And I was up in the dock like a perch, you know, perched like a bird in a cage up there. And I remember covering myself because my genitals were showing. I I had no underwear on, the zip had broken. I had no buttons on my shirt. I'm trying to cover myself. And there were my parents and my sisters. And there was a whole bunch of school kids who must have been doing legal studies or something there and a lot of other people. And all I remember was a voice saying, are you, you know, Arthur Bolkers? And then he asked me again. I said, yes. And the process continued. And I was fortunate that I got bail because I was a clean skin, no history. My sister, Helen, put up her life savings at that point. Without that money, I would have been remanded for seven months until I actually went to court. But as it was, I was released on bail and... um, The professor at the uni wanted to see me. In fact, he sent a solicitor to assist me. He couldn't come himself that night, but he sent a solicitor. We talked. And then I went and met him, and I remember he said, Arthur, you are in really serious trouble, son, more than you realise, and you're young. Chances are you're going to go to prison, and I'm concerned for your welfare because you're a young bloke, you're you're a good-looking bloke. He said that to me. And you could be in trouble in there. Well, you know, I didn't. That just went through one ear and out the other. Because mm, I don't think you're bunging it on now in terms of I. my impression is that you were quite a cocky young bloke. You were pretty smart. You were good looking. You did have a chip on your shoulder. I think the attitude that you're portraying now pr- probably was pretty close to your attitude then, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I wasn't a smartass. I didn't go no. around being a smartass. But I had attitude. I had confidence. Um, Look, I was ducks of year 12 and school captain. So, you know, I was a leader. I was well known. I had a really healthy ego. 
but I had this other side to me that people, you know, I had issues. But you did go to jail. You got five years? Yeah, the, the professor um, arranged for me to go to a place called Greswell. I, I saw a psychiatrist through the uni. He said, I think you need to go to a drug rehab. And there was a place called Greswell near La Trobe Uni in those days. And I went there for about two and a half months. What was your drug, by the way? I, I, was, I was a poly drug user. That was the first year that I used drug drugs. I used to drink a lot. But being an athlete and a law student and all that and a footballer, I didn't touch uh, can- cannabis is where most people start. And after that, once I'd tasted, um, you know, got a taste for the drugs and how they made me feel, I used any drug that came my way. And when there wasn't this drug or that drug, I'd say, well, what drug is there? And fortunately for me, I, I wasn't out of prison long enough uh, otherwise, and with the money that I had, I would have invariably have gotten into heroin and stuff like that, and who knows where that would have led me. Anyway, so I ended up going to prison. Uh, I'd just turned 22. It was the Supreme Court of Victoria. It was, so it was a serious, it was considered very serious. And the judge, as I said, he said, I have to make an example of you. Back in those days, armed robberies were going off on a daily basis. Two weeks before I went to court, my barrister, I remember he called me in, He's a QC these days. He was just a junior barrister back then, but he was a good bloke. He was Greek and he cared about me. And I remember he said to me, if you were my son, and I said, what? He said, well, I don't know whether you'd be here. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Arthur, you're going to go to prison, get it through your head. He said, it doesn't matter who represents you. I reckon you'll go to prison until about five or six years. And when I heard that, I said, what, five or six years? But, but I signed that I did these. I, I confessed what money I had left, and there wasn't much, I gave back. I signed the cars back that I had. You know, in my mind, it was like, okay, I'm not a bad person. I'm not really dangerous. You know, this, this was my thinking. Anyway, when he said that, I actually began to arrange to take off overseas because I knew a few people in the drug scene. Uh, who could arrange passports and visas and for 10 grand in those days, which was a lot of money. And I was going to do that until a family friend came and talked to me about his brother who'd done a similar thing. And he described how he was overseas, but he wasn't free. Now, if that, ma- if that man wasn't there, I would have gone. And you kind of wonder what would have happened? Who would I be? Would I have survived? Anyway... I stayed and I faced the music and I went to court. And in those days, I got an 11-year maximum with an eight-year minimum. But back then, they had built into the sentencing process what they call remissions. So remissions was an opportunity if you showed good behavior, you could earn time off your minimum. And judges knew that when they sentenced you that you had that opportunity. So, I mean, although I could have done uh, the whole minimum, I earned most of my remissions, but it wasn't because I was, for most of that time in prison, a good boy. It was because I learned to become extremely manipulative and devious, and I learned how to work the system, and I started to really, really become a criminal, and that was scary. I remember that so clearly, changing from this sort of stupid, naive, in so many ways, young man into this angry. I say to people, the residual effect of that whole experience, even after 40 years, isn't the drugs or the sex or the, although they all affected me, but it's, it was the anger that I struggled with more than anything. Well, to me, though, it's sounding like, you know, you were saying even as a younger man, you looked around and said, or even as a child, it sounds like, Oh, I get it. Adults just use each other. Adults just manipulate. They just bullshit. It's all a game. This is how adult the adult world works. Yes. I mean, pre- the prison system is just the extreme end game when it comes to that stuff, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, how the yeah. prison system works. And the, look, prison is an extreme subculture. A- and if you step into that subculture and you don't know how that world works, the rules you can get seriously hurt. You can get into serious trouble. Uh, I had to learn on my feet, man. I mean, the first guy who assaulted me with a billiard cube broke it across my head, tried to gouge my eyes out with the severed end. 
because I asked him why he changed the TV channel in a dormitory when he was playing pool and wasn't even watching the movie that we were watching. And he just, as he attacked me, he started yelling at you fucking university student. So he'd heard that this new fella in the dorm went to Melbourne Uni and he didn't like people like me. You see, I represented everything that he despised because he's the stereotypical prisoner who grew up in, in a certain kind of home or lack of home, in the boys' homes, in the detention, and he grabbed, and he was one angry man. And I, the educated, you know, who went in there with this imitation gun, I'd entered his world now, and he wanted to show me that in his world I didn't cut it. And the scary part, as I said before, is that I slowly learned to cut it. And at the three-and-a-half, four-year mark, honestly, the person I was most scared of was me. And the way I changed and my potential to do things that innately I knew weren't right. But the further I went, I called it the bottomless pit and I went, started to go down it. And, and so you start to compromise. You you do things that you know are wrong, that you don't want to do, but you do them. And the more you do that, the more you become that and the less conscience there is. You had a serious mental health crisis at about the four-year mark, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, by that stage, I'd gone from Pentridge to medium security, Beechworth Prison, and then they moved me to the open camps, as they're called. There was one in South Gippsland called Yarram. I did about a year there. Then they moved me to the end of the line, and that was a place called Morwell River, and it was in the Strezlecki Ranges there in South Gippsland in a really remote wilderness kind of area. Isn't that supposed to be a positive transition? Isn't that supposed to be towards from maximum security towards heading back into society? Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're given more freedom. I mean, Morwell River didn't, didn't have a fence around it. It was just in the bush. It was a former reforestation camp. And you were there completely on trust. Now, you knew that. And, and so a lot of the inmates were short-termers, white-collar offenders, and long-term prisoners who had done most of their sentence and they're on the way out. So if you escaped or acted the smart-ass there, they'd send you back to Pentridge. Well, you knew that, right? So most people did the right thing. While I was there not even half a kilometre from the prison in the bush, I was growing a ma little ma marijuana plantation. <laughs> so, you know, I hadn't been rehabilitated because <laughs> people ask me that all the time. Oh, but weren't you rehabilitated? And I say, are you kidding me? In prison, I'm going to get rehabilitated? How was how that possible? I mean, it's because people don't understand what prison is. Anyway, and, and I was sprung on a drug charge and within an hour – with an, with an officer right beside me, I had to pack all my things into boxes and just leave everything, and I was put in the back of a van and I was sent back to Pentridge. And, and, and the acting governor who hated me, I remember he said, we finally got your bulkers. Now fuck off out of here. So uh, I go back to Pentridge. And it was in Pentridge that I kind of had this crisis in the sense that, look, I wasn't afraid of Pentridge. I'd done my first 12 months there. I'd been in jail four years, so I wasn't afraid of prison per se. My life suddenly just lacked any meaning or purpose completely. It's hard to actually describe this to people, but I came to a point where I was almost past caring. I didn't seem to care. I felt emotionally numb. I didn't care about whether I got out. I didn't care about my family. I didn't care about me. I didn't care about anything. I just felt this numbness. I remember I was in the cell. Pentridge cells were really narrow. We're talking my arm span wide. I could touch both walls with an open arm span, and they were two and a half times as long. And there was no open window with fresh air. It was like being entombed. It was 18 hours a day locked in these little vaults. Um, and I stood there, I remember touching both the walls for I don't know how long. And as I stood there, a little thought entered my head, a little voice sort of crept over my shoulder and said, Hey, Arthur, why don't you take the shit? 
and wrap it around your neck and hang yourself from the bars and it'll all be over. And I really seriously thought about it. And, you know, people around me in that environment had done it. And I came close. Thank goodness I didn't, of course. It just makes me think about the system. You know, at this stage you're probably, I think, about 26 years old. 27, yeah. And you're a young man who's come from a loving home. And, yes, every family has its shit, but you've come from a loving home. You've um, done really well at school. You have been working your way toward a law degree. You're obviously very intelligent, creative man with so much potential to have done anything. Yes, you turned to armed robbery and scared a lot of people, but to end up that low at 27 years of age after four years in, in the corrections system to me says so much about the system. Um, certainly at that time, and we know that this was decades ago, but still it makes you think, well, how could that other man who who attacked you in, you know, when he was playing pool, who came from so much disadvantage, what hope for him? Yeah, that's right. If, if this is where you got to at, at age 27. Yeah, yeah, look, exactly. Obviously, over the years in prison, if there's one thing you do, you think a lot. In fact, you think too much. You can spend all, all your time inside your head, and that's a dangerous place to be. And I learned really quickly that in prison, it's Groundhog Day. If you've ever seen the movie Groundhog Day, that's what it's like. Yeah. Well, that's what people talk about. It's just so boring. Boring. And that's what I say to people. Well, forget the movies, man. You think it's all that fights and sex and you're going to get – did you pick up the soap in the shower and get raped? And I said, yeah, those things happen. But incidentally, here and there, it's not every day, especially now compared to – there was a lot more violence in, in the Pentridge year. Absolutely. A lot more sexual abuse and all of that. But – Still, mainly the boredom, the frustration, which, which breeds to so many negative things. And I, I learned quickly, you've got to keep occupied. So in prison, as today, you, won't find, you wouldn't find me sitting around bored. I was always, if it wasn't study, and I wanted full-time study, and I fought for it in a system, uh, an era, where education was perceived as being for smart asses like me. You know what I mean? They called us silver tails. If you did educate, oh, you think you're better than us, you know, that kind of mindset. I mean, if I ran the prison system, I'd make education in its various forms, whatever it means to the person who needs it, I'd make it compulsory because I reckon that is one of the key means of changing your life because it changes your thinking gets you to learn how to uh, utilise the capacity of your brain and, you know, it takes you into other worlds and empowers you in, in amazing ways. So anyway, I, I, I did education, I did hobbies, I did sport, I all sorts of things. I, I used to write, I kept a journal, I wrote poetry, I did a lot of things like that. Until this day, I'm always busy. So that helped me a lot during the time that I was in prison. I had a bit of an epiphany in prison. You could say I met God or maybe God met me. I'm one of these prisoners who found religion <laughs> and it happened through discovering a New Testament in that prison in a really amazing way. Long story short, I embraced the faith um, that I have today and I mention that because it's important. If you're going to change from a criminal minded way of life, which I had. And honestly, if I'd gotten out of prison the way I was after four years in prison, there is no doubt in my mind either I would have died fairly quickly or I would have spent my time making money illegally and that would have probably been through drugs. And, you know, that would have been a really terrible outcome. And the reason it's changed is because when you embrace, as I embraced, you know, my Christian faith, it prescribes certain ways of behaviour, the way you treat people, the way you treat yourself. And it gave me a, a new lifestyle, I suppose, is what I'm saying. And that's what's kind of held me together through the tough times. And I'm still on that journey. I'm by no means a saint. <laughs> uh, I'm a battler, but... You know, I'm making 
small steps of progress. And I'm grateful for, you know, what I've got and where I'm at and the love and support that I've received over many, many years from many good people. And if I didn't have the good people, I don't know where I would have been. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for all of that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I, I got out of prison on April the 16th, 1983. That was D-Day for me. And I just remember it so clearly. I remember the magpies warbling in the early morning. I remember the pitter-patter of just gently falling rain on the roof and the feeling that you're going home. And, again, surreal. It just didn't seem real because five and a half years in prison is a long time and you do become institutionalised and you do become anxious at the very least, if not afraid of getting out. You do because when you think about it in prison, in that world, you don't have to do much. There's no responsibilities really. Everything's done for you. I got out and I remember, long story short again, within, uh, I got out in April, I got married in July. Now, you know, I wish someone had grabbed me and said, look, we're going to hog tie you and stick a <laughs> sock in your mouth, but you're not going to get married. Yeah. But no one did. The only person who sort of put it to me that I wasn't ready was an ex-prisoner friend that I'd met in prison who got out before me. He said, Arthur, you're not ready to get married, mate. You, you know, you give it a bit of time. You, you, you're going to marry a 21-year-old virgin? You, you reckon you're up to that? You know, would you know how to behave? Would you know how to treat her? That's a whole long story, and it's a sad story too. My father died from a heart attack three months before I got out of jail. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm so yeah. sorry. Yeah, no, it was, um, it was huge because I – for the next nine or ten years, I blame myself for his death. And the truth is he would have lived longer than 65 years if he hadn't had the stress of what I'd done in his life. And I only really appreciated that when I became a father. And I got to experience the love, the unique love that a parent has for a child and the vulnerability to your child. 
And my father experienced that with me. And wow, wow. And so when he died, there was so much unfinished stuff there. I needed to get to know him and he to get to know me. I needed to tell him I loved him and to tell him I was sorry and to show that in actions and, you know, to, um, yeah, a lot of stuff. He loved the young woman that I married. She was from a church-going family. My parents were Christians, went to the same church. I met her through the church, and she was 16 when I was 21 or 22, and she wrote to me one day because I'd, apparently I'd met her in a youth group when I was before I went to prison, and she remembered me, and so she wrote to me, and six months later I answered, poured my heart out, nine-page letter. And, and we became pen friends. She probably influenced me for good more than anyone else. And if you talk about rehabilitation, she was a big part of that for me. And I admired her. I respected her. I never would have harmed her consciously, deliberately, no. And my father used to say to me, Arthur, you can't just have this girl writing to you and come and visit you with us sometimes You've got to give word. Give word in the Greek uh, context means you've got to commit to marry her. Oh, okay. Wow. And I, and I used to say, Dad, I can't do that. Like I knew that I had issues and I was still in prison. So give word? Are you kidding me? But when he died, I went to his funeral because I was getting temporary leaves from time to time to go home for 24 hours, 36 hours, come back to prison to adjust, climatise. And when I went to his funeral, in the early morning hours of the day of his funeral, I met Anna because it was unescorted. I was allowed to go on my own. Someone would drive me there and back. I went to see Anna and I proposed marriage and she accepted. So I went to the funeral telling everyone I'd just gotten engaged. And one of my uncles said, Arthur, this is your father's funeral. You don't announce engagements here. What are you doing? I'd lost the plot. Lost the plot. But also it was something, you knew it was something he'd wanted you to do, so I can understand that, thinking. Of course. I wanted I wanted to redeem myself in his eyes, make him happy, make him proud of me, all that. Anyway, and look, I cared about her as well, but I didn't really know myself well enough, let alone her, let alone to get married, for goodness sakes. Anyway, um, when I got out, she noticed differences in me. I used to write letters and tell her there's a part of me that is, and I'd try as best I could to say that there's a shadow side to me, a dark side to me. Uh, not that I'm a bad person, but I've got some traits that aren't good. And I knew that I wasn't stupid, but she didn't get it. You know, she could see this bloke that she was in love with and she adored me. And um, she noticed changes in my behaviour, in my attitude, in the way I spoke, in, you know, the anger that she saw a few times expressed, uh, not towards her personally, but in different ways. And she tried to postpone, but I was adamant we had to get married because we said we would, and so we did. And that marriage lasted 10 years, but it wasn't a marriage. It wasn't a marriage. It was wrong. And I committed adultery a year and a half into the marriage, and I told her two years later, and she absolutely lost the plot. And sadly, that was at a point where we were starting to get it together. I'd been out three years, three and a bit years, and I was starting to sort of get my act together. And I went and told her. Why did I tell her? I think because I felt guilty, you know. And that marriage deteriorated. And then um, I met the woman of my dreams. Oh, that's good. Are you still together? No. It lasted for 16 years. That's great. Yeah, and um, the first 10 or 11 were the absolute happiest years of my life. So I, I have experienced true happiness and joy and love and two sons. Last night I watched your um, episode of Insight from 2019. What was interesting about that was that it was an episode about remorse. You were very clear about when 
you felt remorse for your victims, if we can use that word. There was a moment where um, you were taken back to that lady in the TAB who screamed when she saw you. Yeah, that's right. You were speaking to schools a lot after you came out of prison and I remember a story about you had a, an appointment to speak at a school one day and you got a phone call the day before. That's right, and they cancelled and when I said why, it turns out that the aunt of one of the teachers at that school was the woman that I tried to rob who went started screaming and she said if he comes to the school, even though it was like, I don't know, 20-something years later, mm. Um, she said, I'll, I'll resign. And so they cancelled me. Well, that hit me like a sledgehammer. I, I remembered, I thought, wow, all these years later, here's a victim of my crime. Not only the aunt, but the uh, niece of the this niece. woman. Like in their family, you are the boogeyman. Exactly, exactly. You are like the scariest thing that's ever happened in their family. It was you. Exactly. So, so what, what could I do? I wrote a letter and I said what I had to say to the aunt and I asked the teacher that had invited me to speak if she could pass it on to the other teacher to give to the aunt. Did it arrive there? I don't know. But that's all I could do. If she'd come back to me and said, I want to meet you and tell you what I think of you and how you harm me, I would have gone. Yeah, but more importantly is that you thought about, you, you were forced to realise oh, shit, I've impacted this family, like all of these people. When I was arrested, the last thing I thought of was the people I'd harmed. I became the victim. And in a real sense, I did become the victim of a system, which I'm not saying it's like that today, but to some extent or other, every system that we have, political systems, educational systems, criminal justice systems, there is an element of corruption, if you like, built into them because human beings are involved. And not all human beings are upstanding and morally honest and ethical and all the rest of it, whether they wear uniforms or whether they're, they're prisoners. And so, you know, I, I tried to do what I could do with the police officer whose gun I took and could have shot and killed. Years later, I got to meet with the detective that arrested me and charged me, he ended up becoming a superintendent. And I was in touch with him. I can't remember exactly how. And I said to him, listen, I'm not sure what that police officer's name was, but in your position, can you please try and track him down, find out who he is, whether he's still an officer today or whether he retired or whatever. I want to send him a letter to apologise to him and his family. And how, I remember he said to me, Arthur, it was a long time ago, son. You went to jail and you served your sentence and your punishment and you've come out and you've obviously now, t this is when I'd moved into criminology and all that stuff. He said, you've obviously turned your life around and that's wonderful. Look, I can't do that. Just let it rest. Now, again, I would have gone down that path. But here's the thing. You know, you mentioned the Insight program that I was on a few years ago. Well, the feedback from that was overwhelmingly positive because they have a Facebook page and I remember seeing all these comments and, oh, isn't it great that he's now moved on and he's doing this and he's helping other prisoners and he was a youth worker and blah, 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 blah. But then there are a couple who absolutely tore the strips off me and it turns out two of them were the children of the first TAB robbery I did. Ah, I see. And they wrote, you, this, and, and, you know, really scathing comments. And then there was another person who said some harsh things. That was the wife of that very police officer whose gun I took and threatened. And she wrote some heavy things. And I replied to both of them. And we had this sort of correspondence for a while. And I said things to them and you know, they replied and they asked me questions and and I tried to apologise as best I can to show remorse. And I was remorseful, I really was, especially on the heels of that first instance with that aunt because it hit me, you see, when I first entered the system, I became the victim of a system that abused me and hurt me and allowed things to happen to me. I mean, in those days, the officers were thugs. 
you know, they saw their job as trying to break us or something. And there was violence and there was abuse and there was intimidation and there was fear. And you knew that if you opened your mouth and said something, they could take you into a cell and punch the living crap out of you, you know. And, and so you had to <clears throat> contain it and hold it. And some people would explode and they'd end up in H division and they'd come out broken, crippled men. So all of this has happened. What, I'm going to think of my victims in this environment? No way. So when you get out of prison, you know, years have passed now. So, you know, you don't sort of sit and think, oh, yeah, I did, because I wasn't doing them anymore. I'd changed my life. I'd moved on. But then when it came back to me and it was brought to my attention that this existed, that there was, you know, this ripple effect from my crimes and it just went out over time and it affected a lot of people. It just blew me away. So the positive thing that came out of this for me is that those, that brother and sister of, you know, the, the first robbery that I did, and he apparently the father had passed away, uh, and they had explained to me the consequences of my actions, that their father couldn't work anymore and economically it affected them. And so a similar situation to yours in a way. Well, there you go. And so in the end... Both of them forgave me. Wow. I, I remember it was such a, a wonderful relief to hear that from them. And, and this is one of the reasons why I'm really big on forgiveness. To forgive is just so incredibly important to me. You know, to, to not hold a grudge, to not bear ill feeling towards someone, to hang on to it and hang on to it. Because I, I, I felt that for the system a long time. I hated the system. When I got out of prison in the early days in particular, if you'd said prison, man, you know, or, or, or I'd see a uniformed uh, person or, or thoughts, feelings, flashbacks, all of that. I don't feel that now. I don't harbour resentment. I call the system accountable for its failings and even till this day, you know, prisons don't work. They don't rehabilitate people. Why, why do we keep building them? I was in a prison just recently that's just been built it cost $1.2 billion and it's going to house 1,280 prisoners. It's the largest prison in Victoria, probably in Australia, or maybe even the Southern Hemisphere. And I'm thinking, why? Why did they build a prison that's recently opened called Cherry Creek for adolescents? It's a full security prison. Uh, Wife for young guys who research shows us are going to graduate within five years, 50% of them end up in adult prison. 50% of kids in out-of-home care, what's out-of-home care mean? They're kids who, through no fault of their own, have ended up in a situation where their parents, for one reason or another, are not able to care for them, if they've got parents. And so the state steps in and takes over. Well, they might try their best to help them, but, but that's not a normal, loving, nurturing family environment, is it? When you've got a couple of workers in a house with a couple of kids and, you know, research shows 50% of those kids end up in the youth justice system. So it's like a stepping stone. And then they end up in adult prison. We've been talking about this for a couple of years, absolutely. These stats have been the same stats since certainly since you were a kid and ended up in the prison system with those men and all of, you know, those famous, brutal, violent men that, who became outlaws in Australia from your Chopper Reeds to your, you know, Dale Flannery's, all of those men, Nettie Smith's, had the same profiles, came through the same system really. As much as people say it's a different system now, it's the same setup, it's the same stats. That's heartbreaking to think of that many young men in a facility together, isn't it? That, that nothing's changed, that no better plan has been created. The, the big difference between my era when I first went into Pentridge the, is the profile of the inmates and the reasons that they ended up in prison. Back in my day, I remember some of these were career crims. They, they were hard men and, and their career was crime. And every now and then they'd get arrested for a crime and they'd go to prison and they'd do it. They'd do it, you know, like this is an occupational hazard, so I'm going to go to jail. And in prison they had standing, they had rules, you know, ethical rules even, things you do and things you don't do, the inmate code as it was called. I remember that very clearly. 
And then it started to change. And the thing that changed it in the late 70s, early 80s, was drugs. Heroin was the big one. We started hearing about these junkies, as they were called in those days, and maybe still are. And, And today, prison is full of drug addicts, full of drug addicts. And they're addicted to illicit drugs, but they also get addicted to illicit drugs, prescribed medication. I mean, if if people knew how many drugs are legally dispensed in the prison system on a given day, they'd, they'd be horrified. Don't you think also that the prison system's become a pseudo-mental health system? Oh, absolutely. Um, as one commentator put it, the mental health institutions of the 21st century are prisons. When yeah. we deregulated or whatever the term was they did back in the 90s, some premier here in Victoria, Kennett, Jeff I think Kennett. it was. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when those places, okay, they weren't nice and they needed to be uh, upgraded and improved, sure, sure. But at least they kind of catered to some extent for vulnerable people because they needed support. Well, when they closed them all down, those a lot of those, I saw them in prisons when I was in prison. I used to come across people and think, you shouldn't be here. You're too young and too damaged or whatever, but you shouldn't be here. You need help. And even today, unless you're a notorious pedophile or you know some, some high-risk offender, you don't get counselling in prison. You don't, you don't get counselling when you get out. You know, they're the things I would make compulsory. I've often said they need someone who understands their world to spend time talking with them. I often say, look, when people ask me about rehabilitation in prison, that is largely middle-class Australia talking, right? And what we mean when we say it is we want you, offender, criminal, prisoner, to become like us, to think like us, to behave like us, to pull your weight like us and not to harm us. And I haven't got a problem with that. The thing is this, how are they meant to learn to do that when they've grown up in a completely different world and they're not middle-class Australians? And I use the research statistic that tells us that 50% of all Victorian prisoners come from only 6% of Victorian postcodes. One in four prisoners in Victoria come from 2% of postcodes. There are hundreds of postcodes. So these people are coming from certain parts of our city and we know where they are. And if you're a little boy in that environment and you're growing up, good chance you're going to drop out of school early, drop into juvenile detention, drop into prison, and you could spend the next 20 or 30 years there. So why don't we go and salvage them if we know that? And you know why we don't? Because it's systemic. It's become so entrenched and such a a part of our life that for us to change all that, our mindset and our culture, would mean a massive upheaval and transformation. And it would mean that, you know, we need to do things that we're just not prepared to do. Um, at the very basis level, we need to, to be more, more equitable with, you know, opportunity and money and all that kind of stuff. And also to change the, the mindset also means to change the spending. So instead of spending that billions of dollars on a new detention centre to invest billions of dollars on supporting families in those postcodes and helping people who need help because they don't know and and to stop putting shit on young parents who don't know how to buy groceries, who don't know how to do that stuff because no one ever taught them. And instead of being so high and mighty about that and saying, how can you not know how to do that stuff? You know, just be helpful. Just be less judgmental and be kinder and help people. There is such a lot of ignorance out there. And I often say the public needs to become educated to the facts, to the truth. What if I took you, middle-class Australian, who expects these people to get rehabilitated somehow, what if I took you and dropped you into their suburb where they grew up? How do you reckon you'd fare? Good point. What if I took you and dropped you into the drug scene? that they've lived in for so long. Do you reckon you'd survive? What if I put you in a maximum security prison tomorrow? They'd be fine. They know how to live that world. How would you fare? So why do we expect them to somehow miraculously just fit into our world? Do you know how they learn? The ones who want to learn? By spending time with those people. 
what work do you do now? What work do you enjoy doing and how can people get in touch with you? Look, I when my second marriage ended, I was <laughs> I was in a bad way and I made a decision then and listened to some of my ex-prisoner mates who kept telling me that I'd been doing this work for way too long and I needed to stop. And I eventually stopped in, in the sense that I don't go into prisons now and I'm not involved at the coalface, as I put it. But what I do with my time is, and I'm, you know, I'm older, I'm, what am I, 68, which is amazing. So what I do now is um, I, I spend a lot of my time writing. I've got a book at the moment, which is in the hands of a publisher. And I, every day I check my emails, you know, mm, they're going to publish it. And it's based on my prison journal, um, largely. It's, it's about my experience in prison. So it's a bit of sort of history too, in, in a sense. And I'm working on my second book, which is also about a guy getting out of prison, a different type of story, not just about me, about people I've known. So I spend my time writing, which I love. I love writing, and I'm not bad at it. Um, but and more importantly, when I get a book published, who knows where it will go, you know? And, and, and so that's like a legacy. That, that's an opportunity for me to, to take my knowledge and impart it. The other thing I do, I speak. I speak in schools. I speak at, um, I've been invited to Probus Club. And then there's Rotary Clubs and Lions Clubs I've spoken at and community groups. So, you know, when I get invited, I've spoken in churches and youth groups and you name it. I see my role, my responsibility to share what I've learned with, with people in the community. I like to think with, well, put it this way, I can't think of a person that I haven't made peace with. And that's a really good place to be. Thank you to our guest, Arthur Bolkus. There's a link in our show notes to Arthur's Facebook page so that you can get in touch with him for speaking engagements. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13 yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.